Hey guys, are you one of the many fathers with sons who have lamented the fact that we've lost a sense of what it means to be a man in the church and in the world today? And also, we've lost rites of passage for sons to become men. I would love to be able to come out and talk to the men of your church on rites of passage, building sons into men. The Bible teaches that God has created men to worship, work, protect, provide, lead, and love. And what I've done is built these rites of passages in a malleable way so you can take these, adopt them, or change them to suit your church or your particular son so they can have a clear vision of what manhood is and how to get there. If you would like me to come for a seminar or conference, please reach out to me and we can work out the details. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. This ministry exists to provide coaching, resources, and events for pastors and church members. My name is Jared Sparks. Join me as I talk pastoral ministry, applied theology like manhood and womanhood, political theology, and cultural analysis with a little bit of hunting and fishing thrown in. I'm a husband, a father, and a pastor, and I'm here to remind you of the chief pastor and our king, Jesus. Welcome back to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. Hope you guys are having a great day today. It is icy cold out my door today. We are at about four degrees and got a little bit of snow. I noticed most people south of us got a little bit more snow than we did, but we're enjoying enjoying the cold weather and going to get outside and this afternoon and do a little things, a few things in that cold weather and test my winter weather gear with the boys couple announcements before we get going today. I'm excited about this conversation I'm going to have, but just want to remind you of the Fruitful and Fearless podcast and the Sons and Slaves podcast, and also the Shepherd's Crypt membership. If you want a monthly newsletter coming directly to your mailbox, a good old-fashioned newsletter, then just hit me up, message me, and I'll put you on the list. And then once a month, you'll get that newsletter. And at the end of every year, you'll get the content, both audio and video from the Shepherd's Crook uh, directly to your mailbox via a thumb drive. So if you want to be a part of that, then please join. All right. I'm excited to have a conversation with a man that I'm just now getting to know, and you're going to get to know him as I am as we record here today. I am talking to Chuck Delorante from Private Family Banking. Chuck, how's it going, brother? Hey, I'm doing great. We also are a little chilly here. I'm probably further south than you are. I'm between San Antonio and Austin, and it was a crisp uh, 21 degrees this morning, so not probably as cold as you all. (laughs) (laughs) And a little light, light dusting. I went out earlier to do something. I noticed a dusting of snow, but not too much. But yeah, we're surviving some water issues. You know, in South Texas, we're just not used to sustained temperatures at this level. So I tried to winterize, but you know, planning, planning yeah. is that just that? It's just a plan. So that kind of fits with kind of what we're talking about. You know, well, how do we plan financially for the future? And you know, what ways do we save money? How can we do more with our money? That's kind of the nature of a a call today and ultimately sort of legacy multi-generational wealth building is a key function and key key aspect of what we do so yeah i'll let you fire away with a little few questions maybe and we'll get started yeah well we'll get to that but let me go ahead and pray and yeah then we'll get to our questions so let's pray super 
Father, right. we thank, thank you for this time. I thank you for a brother in Christ down in Texas, uh, the great land of the free down there. And I pray that you would just bless this conversation. I pray that you'd be honored. And for those that are thinking about how to plan for the future and how to be the kind of man that Proverbs calls us to be, which is just leaving an inheritance to our children's children. Give us wisdom on how to do that and how to live in light of that. And I just trust this conversation is going to be edifying and helpful. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Chuck, before we get into this, wasn't it a couple of years ago down in Florida with that extended cold snap that went down there that all the pipes were breaking and you know people weren't ready for that kind of that temperature? Is that the kind of thing that's happening again? It was like three or four years ago. Yeah, Texas. Yeah, we uh, we had a real brutal one about three years ago. Of course, everybody is more prepared now. But even so, I've got some water issues this morning, and I ran, run some beef cattle on our land here, and our water didn't make it all the way through the night. So uh, we're going to have a day or two before it's going to warm up. But nothing's breaking yet. But yeah, we really got hit there, what, three or four years ago, and it was... I think we had five days, not above 20, and that's just something that's almost impossible down here. And mm. we lost water. We didn't lose power, though, so and we still have power this morning, so we're grateful. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay, well, let's dive right in. Before we hear about the business, just tell us a little bit about your family so we can get to know you a little bit. And I know that Jordan got to talk with your daughter and had a great time with uh, that. It was a really great interview, but i just love to hear a little bit about yourself and your family. And, and then you, you already said you're down in Texas, but just bring us up to speed. So who, who's Chuck? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for that interview with my daughter. I, I listened to it. I thought your wife and, and she did a great job together. So we're really grateful for that. That's our daughter, Catherine. And she actually runs the beef business, but sort of backing up, who am I? So uh, I grew up in the Midwest, as my wife did. We grew up in Ohio and Michigan, respectively, and then I met her when I was in college. And so we're coming up on 49 years of marriage uh, in uh, September of this year. We had 11 children. Uh, we have one remaining at home, 20-year-old daughter, Catherine, and uh, six boys, five girls. And I was always entrepreneurial, although I worked a corporate job. And I, uh, you know, I, I worked for the man, if you will, and there's nothing wrong with that. If the Lord doesn't provide it, you know, differently. And if you haven't, you know, uh, set yourself up for a different career uh, path or uh, use of your skills, and that's fine. But I always had my eye on, okay, what can I do besides the 40-hour job? So eventually, the Lord opened some doors in that and going from corporate life in uh, really starting in 1998 and finally came uh, full on in 2000, I moved to a consulting role and I was an independent consultant doing productivity, throughput, uh, process improvement in the healthcare industry, even though I had a long career in the auto industry. And so through that, I, uh, I moved around a bit, traveled a bit. And in 07, we wound up in San Antonio, Texas for some work, decided to stay. And then a brief uh, shot up in Nashville for a few years and then back. And so we're back in San Antonio now. I do a little bit of contract work uh, at the moment, probably to the end of February. And then private family banking is really um, something I've been thinking about for a long time. I first saw the concept in somewhat of its infancy about 20 years ago, and I didn't do anything with it. And then five years ago, I, I just I was looking at life. I, I was coming up on my late 60s, uh, mid to late 60s, and I uh, I knew my term life insurance was going to expire, and I was kind of saying, hey, I need to revisit this idea of how can I do this thing that now we, we, we brand it private family banking. More broadly, it's known as the infinite banking concept, and give credit to a guy named Nelson Nash. He was a Christian out of Birmingham. Yeah. He came up with this concept, but yeah, so... Um, 
the, uh, the long and short of it, I had a long corporate career as an engineer and a middle manager and uh, was educated in the uh, in the auto industry uh, engineering mode and got an MBA and then uh, went on to do many things. But our family, we were always entrepreneurial and uh, my kids have different businesses and do different things all around the country. So that's okay. where we are right now. Very cool. Very Grandparents of 20, 20, by the way. Awesome. Coming up on uh, 21st grandchild in uh, February in uh, Virginia. Okay. So, Praise God. It's incredible. Yeah. It's an exciting thing. And, you know, a lot of guys in my situation in life, you know, I'm just in my early, just, just turned 40. And we look at guys like yourself and, and we pray, you know, God may it be for us. You know, we, we've got four children, just had our fourth, yeah, third son, one little girl, and just really enjoying life. But uh, it's, a, it's exciting things. It's neat to see what God has uh, done in your life. So you're still in your late 60s and you're getting after it. Uh, tell us about private ba family banking then. And, you know, we've heard the ads on podcasts that we enjoy and listen to. And and now I'm getting to talk to the man here. And so tell us, yeah. Chuck, tell us about it, Chuck. Well, cool. Yeah. So this comes out of the idea that, um, well, let's talk about how this came about. So Nelson Nash, he was a long-term thinker. So he, uh, a believer from, like I said, Birmingham, Alabama, he passed away at 88 years old about three years ago, but he started this whole thing and came up with this idea out of crisis, which sometimes, you know, many of us, until we're uh, under the crucible of some pressures, we don't get innovative. So he was a land investor and a forester, meaning, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Well, today, right? If you want a tree 20 years from now, you got to plant something that day. So you have to seed your capital. That's sort of one of the core concepts of private family banking or this concept in general. And that is you've got to start capitalizing for the future. And we use a, a, a unique uh, uh, scenario to do that. I'll describe that in a moment. But Nelson, he ran into the financial crash. You, you weren't around in the 80s. I was. I remember when interest rates went to almost 20%. Mortgages were at 16, 17%. Money markets were bringing 70%, if you can believe that. So you could pay, you know, high interest rate on a mortgage and turn around and, you know, do a HELOC or whatever, take money out of your house and, and make money on that money. But that's not really the way it is. Of course, a lot's changed, but interest rates are going back up. People are running a little bit afraid of the banking thing. And so that's where we fit in. So the first is it's about capitalizing for the long term. How can you begin? And people say, well, I have a savings account. Well, a couple problems. Your money's probably in the banking system, which isn't a great place for it. Uh, two, it's going to earn some interest, maybe very little, even if you have it in a CD, that interest will be taxed. So with private family banking, we use a high cash value, whole life insurance policy to set up this privatized banking system. That sounds weird. Why would I use life insurance? Well, little be known, Nelson Nash, he taught the life insurance industry a whole new model of how to do whole life insurance where the policyholder with a mutual insurance company gets about 85% of their money immediately on day one when the policy goes in force, whatever they've put in is available to borrow back. And you say, well, well wait a minute, that's loaning. Well, it is, but uh, there's sort of a, I guess you'd call it technically an arbitrage characteristic where the cost of borrowing that money is less than the money that's earning because this thing will earn compound interest all the time with a guarantee Additive to that is a, a, a dividend, which has been, they've, we've paid a, a dividend for over 100 years with the companies we use. So they haven't missed even through major crisis and it all grows tax-free. Okay. So it's capitalizing, it's capitalizing as rapidly as you can. It's never taking the money out, but 
much like you'd think of a, it's a, you own property probably, right? And some people on the podcast that are listening may own rental properties. They all have equity, right? Equity in a property. So when you do a home equity loan, what you're doing is lending against that equity. Here, your equity is in a different asset category called a whole life insurance, cash value in a whole life insurance. That's an asset class. And then what you do is you borrow against that equity that you have, but the insurance company is only charging you a, a rate of interest that's going to be below currently anyway, and probably within the, any time in the future because they want your business and it's the way they manage it. It's below what you're going to earn. And so think about it. If I take a $20,000 loan and I make a payment every month, my inter my balance is decreasing. So the interest on these loans is not like a mortgage. It's not front loaded. Like if you look at an amortization schedule mm -hmm. where a lot of the interest is paid over the first 11 years in a mortgage, 30 year mortgage anyway. Uh, here it's straight in straight line interest, if you will. It's simple interest, technically speaking, whereas you're just charged five to 6% on the remaining balance. And so as that balance goes down every month and your equity, your cash value goes up, just like your equity in a house goes up, but you can't liquefy it. So this is about liquidity. So that's mm -hmm. another key feature. So if you wanted to go buy a new car and you borrow your own money instead of going to the um, mortgage company or the uh, bank or to the uh, credit union or to the car company, you borrow against your own money and you're actually paying less interest than you're borrowing for. You're actually earning more interest than you're borrowing against. So you're really money ahead, if you can mm -hmm. imagine that. So I'm not saying you'd borrow in this to just do anything, but certainly if you're going to buy a capital asset, even though a, a car is a depreciating asset, or you're going to make a home improvement, or you want to put a down payment on a property. So a lot of my clients are real estate investors. There are young families building up for the future. And where the multi-generational part comes in is this all passes on to your heirs tax-free. And we'd like to teach you how to get your kids involved in this, how to create a family office, a family bank, where, you know, I'm not a real idealistic with the Rothschilds, but we won't go there. But they did have a family bank where the Rothschilds, if they borrowed money against the family bank, they had to report in every year. What did they do with it? What business venture did they do? And did they earn a profit on it? And they had to pay interest back at some level. So uh, maybe you want to set it up so the family doesn't have pay interest, but there has to be some accountability. But uh, we work with all of that. And then ultimately that legacy if you die with a million dollars today and you don't, you know, stay out of probate, it's going to get taxed. If you die in a life insurance scenario, that money passes on tax protected, tax free to the heirs. So hmm. that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, very, very good. So as far as regulation goes, is this, is this a loophole that is one day going to be shut down or is this something that's here for the long haul? So we're talking about multi-generational here because it seems unique. I've not heard about this before. Uh, what's the durability of, of your of your plan or the system of private family banking? Is it is it here Fantastic for the long haul? question. Yeah, let me get into that, and that's that's a key question. So, the IRS already jumped in in the late '80s. So, what was happening up until 1988 is this was a haven for very wealthy people, and you could put a whole lot more money today. It's based upon your age, your health, and how much you capitalize with and how we design the policy. You can put quite a bit of money. I mean, I have clients putting in $50,000 a year, $100,000 a year, over five years maybe. And so uh, the IRS came out with what they call modified endowment contract rules in the 80s. And we think that's probably going to be it. I mean, we can't predict the future. 
But what they did is restrict the amount of wealth that you can store in one of these because they saw it was being stored in mass by the rich tax free mm -hmm. and growing tax free. They kind of clamped down on that. So now what's called the MEC MEC or modified endowment contract for rules from the IRS, you based on how we design it. So we could design it so you could put a half a million dollars in or $20,000 in or $10,000 in or you could pay $500 a month or usually about the lowest we go is $300 a month mm -hmm. and make it a savings plan instead of putting money in a 401k. So if I was going to contrast this, so first of all, this is a savings plan, not an investment. You can use this as a swing account to do investing. And I have people that do that. They invest in real estate out of their policy. Some people will do Bitcoin. Some people are doing Amazon businesses. I have a couple pastors. You mentioned your pastoral audience. Um, I have some churches that are inquiring where the church would actually buy this on the pastor and elders so that that elder would get or the pastor would get some life insurance and the church would have use of the cash value. And I'm talking they could do a pretty tidy sum if the church funded it. Well, that's a little unique, very legal. We're talking about loopholes. So I think the IRS had their say so uh, back in cutting off the very wealthy. But mm -hmm. for the average guy, this is probably this. We call it a safe money system. Mm -hmm. It's 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 next to an annuity, which I'm not against annuities. I sell those too, mostly to people who have a, quite a bit of money and maybe a little bit older. But you can buy an annuity even at a younger age. But an annuity is something where you put all the money in, and then you get a lifetime or a ten year payout guaranteed. And then if you die ahead of time, though, you know, then you you lose or whatever. But um, in this, you have your money in, until you die for the rest of your life, and then you still have the money. So mm -hmm. the cash value endures to the end, and then. If there's no loans out against it, you get the death benefits. You don't get both. That's a technicality. But, um, but you know, think about it. About 10 years into this, you're going to get, for every dollar you put in, in savings, you're going to get 2 to $3 back, depending on your age again and your oh health. Gosh. Oh, yeah. It, it's a money multiplier. It actually, and I can't, you know, take the time today to, to, uh, to show screenshots or share screen. It wouldn't be very effective in this kind of um, podcast. But, um but in the details, if people want to make an appointment, I set those up. And then we do a pro forma. We take a look at what, you know, an example, what would this look like? And mm -hmm. so, you know, you get, I have some clients started at age 40. I've, I, my oldest client is 75. My youngest is 18. I had a homeschool kid that had a business and put $30,000 into this Good right off him. the bat. Pays a thousand bucks a month. And he's socking the money away and uh, he's not married yet. So he's going to have a father-in-law looking at that and say, okay, I think I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah, so you young great. guys, this is not just for middle-aged people or old people like me, uh, if you will. But, uh, but I didn't get my first policy till I was 66 because I hesitated, you know, but my need was I needed some more life insurance. I know I'm living on, I'm healthy, I'm working. And, and you hit the nail on the head. I I'm still, you know, I just turned 70 in August, so I'm still going at it. I have two or three business is going. I love to minister to people through this. It is a teaching modality. It's not really selling. It sells itself. If somebody gets the concept and I take them through that, I have a short, free short course I can send people a link to and, and get them going without, you know, and I have an ebook too as well. Yeah. Okay. So you, you have a tagline taking post-mill talk and into post-mill action, something to that effect, regardless of your eschatology, uh, whoever's listening in here, 
God has given us Proverbs wisdom on how we are to live with the money that's entrusted to us, how we are to invest, and even regulated who we give money to. The first of the needy isn't the man on the street corner. The first of the needy is your children. And there's a the way I've talked about it before is that God regulates our giving and our generosity from our home outwards, our home to church, and then beyond that afterwards, after that. And uh, so just talk us through just the wisdom in, I mean, you lived through the seventies and the eighties through uh, the premillennial scares of, you know, Jesus is, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988 or the last great planet earth and people giving all their money away and wanting to die with not a penny in their pocket because they were just generous. And, uh, you know, I think generate generous in a, in a non-biblically regulated way, but Maybe maybe even wanting to do that in a way that honors the Lord, but I, I think really swinging and missing. So give a pitch on the average listener from pastor to businessman that's listening in. Most of the businessmen are probably already thinking through this, but why should we be thinking long-term with our money, and why should we be pursuing this regardless of our eschatology? Yeah, I think that's uh, you frame that up great, because I, I don't think we need to get all hung up over the eschatology. I think generally— as Christians, though I'm strongly post-mill, no bones about that, I did come up, I mean, I got saved in the charismatic movement of the 80s. My wife and I came to Christ in 1982, so um, we were in the charismatic church and all that um, uh, stuff uh, in the 80s, and then slowly the Lord uh, led us through study and studying doctrine and stuff another way. Uh, and, but in that, we were also quite exposed and, and very ignorant, if you will, because we weren't very well taught uh, in our younger days about uh, eschatology. So I, I, I am very compassionate understanding because I came by that way, too. And I don't know that short of heaven, we all have any of all the answers, but I feel pretty strongly on that. But even without talking about the eschatology, meaning end times and how it's all going to wind up, uh, I think as Christians, the Bible doesn't talk about money as evil. It talks about the love of money. And so if we're storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, and a lot of Christians I talk to say, well, what about this? I, you're asking me to save money. Well, we're not supposed to store up treasures on earth. Well, that, that mean, that's a hard issue, right? Are you storing them up in a greedy, self-serving, you're not really looking to minister to anyone, you're not looking to expand the kingdom of God and the work of God on earth, you're really lock, not looking at a dominion orientation, and, and short of a retreatist mentality, you're just basically misunderstanding the scriptures on wealth, and, and I'm not a prosperity preacher, never have been by any sense, but I think that it's actually, in my view, a sin to be lackadaisical and to just give your money away willy-nilly. I'm not saying that anybody who gave their money away is evil or did a wrong thing, but how they did it, why they did it, means a lot. And so it's the same answer is, why would you save? Why would you plan for the future? The Bible talks about um, helping our children, our children's children. Well, you can't do that if you're necessarily, all of us are stone cold broke. I mean, I, I have some friends that have given their entire life to the pro-life movement, uh, to the fact that they've been in jail and basically can't own anything and do all that. I think that much like the evangelist, much like a full-time missionary person, some people are called to do that. Some people are called to be pastors and elders. Some are not. Some, some, some You can be a very good Bible teacher, but not be called to be a pastor. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's a one-size-fits-all, but generally... I think we have a fiduciary, if you will, biblical responsibility to take care of the, the skills and talents 
to find our niche that God is a niche that God is leading us in. And if that involves making money, do we have a heart to build the kingdom of God and to help others as well as enjoy those fruits of our labor? So I don't mm -hmm. think there's any sinfulness at all. And I don't think we should have a hesitation eschatologically, of course, but in, mm -hmm. or at all, even if you're a pre-mill, you, you've got to work until Jesus comes anyway. I mean, what are you going to do? Sit on a high, it reminds me of the old story a pastor told me once, you know, the guy was sitting on his housetop and the flood came and the boat came along to rescue. He said, oh, no, the Lord's going to deliver me, you know, and the next guy came along and the water's getting higher, you know, and he got higher up on the roof and and him and his wife drowned. And, you know, he went to heaven and told, told the Lord, why didn't you save me? He said, well, I sent that boat, you know, I sent that other guy in that raft. You know, right. there was a lot of means that I provided. So I think we can look at means in the wrong way. Not that means justify the ends, but I do think we're responsible for it. So I hope that was adequate. Yeah, yeah, very helpful. You know, I was thinking about the Bigger Barns passage in Luke 11, and I've told our people at our church before and mentioned it on the podcast, but the warning of building bigger barns and folding your hands and looking at it and looking back and saying, whose will they be? Well, right. if if you're a, a Christian man, it's okay to build bigger barns as, as long as you know whose they will be. And the whole right. thing that I've encouraged people is know whose they are. Say, I know exactly who those bigger barns belong to. They're, those are my children. Those are my grandchildren. Those are for the advancement of the kingdom. And the, the problem isn't the bigger barns. The problem is the self-gratification of sitting back and watching them, looking at them, crossing your arms and, and saying, whose are these going to be? And uh, I think guided, spirit-led, godly ambition with money – is something that needs to be unleashed with men in particular that uh, is a whole theological category, I think, because, you know, coming out of a lot of what I came out of, which was was an elevation almost of, whether intended or not, of, of the poverty theology. Right. And the, the course correction isn't money is bad. The course correction is, okay, whose will it be? You know, what are you going to do with the the blessing that God gives through the work of your hands? And yeah, many, uh, many of our churches, uh, they make sure that they keep the pastors poor. <laughs> <laughs> I heard I heard a guy say one time a pastor he he was talking to a group of people and he's like if you want to make sure your pastor is a lover of money don't give him much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, reverse reverse psychology. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, but this is important. You know, the Bible talks a lot about money. It talks more about money than sin, as I recall. Can't remember the number of verses, but it certainly talks about money a lot. But I think, again, and I don't mean to be super ethereal or some sort of, um, I don't know, but it really is about the heart, right? It's a heart issue. Yeah, what What is your, like you said, if I build all these barns and I stand back and say, oh, man, look at this, look what I did, or, you know, now what's this going to do for me? And I haven't really, I'm not really free of that. I think if you can have wealth and be very, very wealthy, and have actual freedom. Financial freedom just isn't being out of debt. Mm -hmm. It's being free of the love of money. That's yeah. my, my view on it. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, raising a large family, uh, being single income. I mean, my wife quit working when she was 22, I think. And, you know, we've been married a long time. Uh, I just had to be innovative and I had to be on it. Just like I'm on it today. I'm not on it out of necessity per se. I mean, I am trying to say, okay, I'm 70 years old. What am I going to do at 80? I, I can't work maybe as hard as I do now, but I want to be doing something. And I wanted to be doing something to serve the kingdom of God. Like I have lots of other things I do other than make money 
that I serve. I, I love working with young people. I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. I lead choirs and orchestras and, and do some conducting work. And I love uh, doing ministry uh, on the street preaching level. I'm trying to reinvigorate that as I free up some of my time after I close this contract work that I'm doing. So I have all kinds of ambitions and enthusiasm about uh, the work of the Lord and God's people. I try to help the people in my church as well and guide them. So back to that idea of, um, you know, what is the guide light? So, you know, you ask the question, uh, would you rather have your money in a safe place where you could actually use the same money in more than one place at the same time? Or would you rather tie it up in some government program? And it's funny, the government created the taxation problem. And I don't want to get into a diatribe about income tax, but we could go all the way back and say that that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. Number one, you know, in the way that it's done today with a graduated income tax Two, uh, if um, if they created the tax problem, which they did, they also created what's called the qualified plans. That's your 401k, your 403b, your IRA, your Roth. All of those are just schemas to get around and try to give back to get, make people happy. But the mm-hmm. problem is a 401k, the tax man's coming. Yeah, and right. all of this debt that we've accumulated in our economy, they're going to come after those 401k accounts. So you're going to probably not pay a lower tax rate. So in this, we we put this money in after tax and it grows tax free. That's a huge advantage. And that idea of getting two or three or sometimes and some of my younger people are getting five times their money when they're 50 years old. They put in a thousand dollars. Their account grows by five thousand. But that's the power of not uninterrupted compound interest. Do you realize if I give you a penny today, if I, if I offered you $2 million right now or a penny a day doubled for 30 days, which would you take? Yeah, well, I mean, I know that. So I would take you know the answer. And that, that's the power of compound interest. Now we're not right. compounding at 2X, but we are compounding later at you know two or three X, depending on when you got in, how much you put in. Now you have to be in a while, and but you do start earning money right away, and you earn a tax free. So you know, but I, I like the ground of let's stay on the scripture. Let's talk about you know the parable of the talents. Let's talk about um, mm-hmm. greed. Let's talk about power. Let's talk about ignoring the poor and forgetting your pastor. And you know, we don't want to be doing all those things. So it's not just about us and our family wealth. It's it's about what we do with it. And if you plan now and teach your kids well, and you pass that money, if you have a million dollars when you die in, de- in death benefit, which is easy to do, frankly. And by the way, most men are underinsured. So I'm not, you know, I am a life insurance agent and a life insurance sales agent. So I'm not against selling somebody even a term policy, but we'd like to see you do this because this is permanent life insurance that lasts you to age 121. And who knows who's going to live that long. But if you do, you get the whole packet. You get it all tax free. Every dollar that you put in, you get back. So that's pretty nice. Okay. Well, let's wrap this up with, I got two more questions for you. The last question I ask everybody, and I'll just go ahead and put it in your mind so you can get the gears turning. But the last question I ask everyone is, tell me why you love Jesus. I just set you up for praising God for his grace to you. So that's coming. But before that, I have pastors that listen and I have regular people that are just businessmen or people within the church that have regular jobs, maybe even a government job. But pastors have this unique predicament if they're wanting to be faithful. And pastors don't have the liberty just to go and pursue the next big church or the next big church. Many pastors do that. But if, you know, in my mind, if he's worth a grain of salt, if, if he's a godly man, he's not going to be jumping just from position to position. He's going to want to love God's people where, where God's established him. So it's not a stepladder kind of career, but it limits, it it somewhat limits then we, we just can't go on to the next 
job. For just for instance, there was a church down the road uh, several years ago, and I could have got that position almost assured of that. It would have been double the income, but we love our people and we know where, where God has us and didn't want to do that. If that was a regular guy at our church and he said, hey, I've got this 30 minutes down the road. I can double my income doing the exact same thing. I'd be like, bro, don't, I mean, don't even pray about that. Just go do it. You know, like, of course, yeah, you know, yeah. what, like, just go do that. There are uniquenesses then within pastoral ministry. So I'm leaning in and listening and thinking, man, I've got questions for Chuck as soon as I hit end. Uh, and what for the pastor, why is this a good option? How is this a good option? And, you know, because there are those limitations in what you can do. It's not yeah. like, you know, I know you can get side hustles and all that kind of stuff, but it yeah, does yeah. seem like a uniquely good option for pastors. Yeah. So I have, I think four pastors already uh, this year signed in. I've really started advertising strongly this year because I'm going to be doing this full time. So I've been in it about five years. So this isn't a flash in the pan. And the pastors that have come to me, three of them are bivocational. Three, three of them have a side hustle, but it, it's a, somewhat passive they're they're doing an amazon thing that's a basically an arbitrage on uh, they they spend you know 25 grand and they get 20 20 to 25 percent profit on their money they don't have to do the work they just have to cough up the money so it starts with really saving to take an advantage of an opportunity like that i just had a young pastor uh, maybe not so young uh call me the other day he's going to start small because he just needs to start saving money i have a pastor out of ohio that's his and he got a policy for himself and his uh, son who's got special needs who's going to be with them for the probably the rest of their lives and he wants to build up capital for him for his needs and so they're just starting by putting in three four or five hundred a month as a means of not saving their money in the banks and i you know i don't know if people know but the the banking system is pretty corrupt just by its nature and that doesn't mean it, it doesn't, it's probably got some good people, but it's got some corrupt people, but as a corrupt structure, and that is called uh, fractional reserve banking, where the bank can loan your money out 9x, 10x, and, and you get nothing. Hmm. Here, you're in control. You become the banker. So that's a good thing. So you don't have to put tons of money in to begin building this thing up. It may not be huge, but I, but I would say... Um, to your point about not being a church jumper as a pastor, not even if it's double your money five miles down the road, that that would, I, I totally support your spirit and your approach on that. So I think that it's just taking, you know, maybe you get a stipend, maybe you get a living expense, so you're getting some tax-free breaks, you're not paying social security. So you do have a little bit of advantage, although you maybe you're underpaid. I mean, I think a lot of pastors are, unfortunately, but um, so it's just really finding that maybe two, 300 bucks a month to start stuffing away. Other than that, it would be a side hustle and maybe picking up some extra work. I know lots of pastors that are now in their sixties that are bivocational. And, um, you know, if you're going to go full in, uh, full time and a church can only pay you like $30,000 a year, you're going to have to figure out how to live on that. That's really not, I mean, really $80,000 a year today is really about minimum. And I, I'm just going to be honest with you, you know, you know I, I do a whole lot more than that because I have multiple streams of income, but it took me a, a part of my lifetime to do that. And I was an elder at one time and didn't take any pay for it because I didn't have to, you know, because I was always working. But that, that's a tough question. I, and I don't, you know, we don't want greed in the pastorate, but we don't want poverty. Uh, and we don't want a, just a downtrodden man who's serving God's people. And I think the church elders and the elder board, or however your uh, your structure is and your governance, 
need to get around this thing and make sure. And that, and that doesn't mean we want the pastor driving a, a you know brand new Mercedes necessarily, but there's nothing wrong with that. And you know, I know some guys have jets, but we won't name them. <laughs> but anyway, we're not doing that. But um, it's just a really tough question. But if if you can take advantage of those perks that you have that are not taxable, if you can find a, some savings money, uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to start. Maybe that initial cash infusion, like I say, we have people putting in. 20, 30, 40, 50, hundred thousand dollars or that over several years in a row. That's that's pretty good. But they're coming out of corporate life. They're coming out of a savings plan they had, or maybe they're liquidating their IRA or their 401k or whatever. Not usually. We usually tell them to keep their 401k, but mm-hmm. uh, that's a hard question. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I think for those that are listening in that have any questions, you you see on the screen there, if you're not watching on YouTube, then I could put this in the show notes on the on the, the podcast. Reach out to Chuck if you're interested, and if you just have questions, reach out to him. Uh, let's wrap this up by just talking about Jesus. I, I just dropped that uh, carrot. Go ahead and tell us, Chuck, why do you love Jesus so much, brother? Yeah, let me talk about that. And and also, uh, by the way, I, you see the text number on the screen. I got to check my back office to get that. If you want to get a hold of me directly, it's Chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Why do I love Jesus? I love Jesus because he showed me that I needed a savior. He he put on my heart that I was a, a destitute for hell. I was a sinner needing repentance. And I turned, had a dramatic salvation in 1982, came right out of the world. And I love Jesus because he was merciful and gracious and granted me his grace to believe. He gave me the willingness to believe and uh, apart from that, I would have never done it. I was a very strong-minded guy, and I did, uh, you know, participated in the Lutheran Church as a teenager, but had no faith, had no sense of God, no sense of my sin. So I, I praise God that He convicted me on my sin, and He's faithful and just, and He He will grant you forgiveness for your sin if you confess it, and you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. And then it's that walk, and I, I can, I can tell you, I've, you know, yeah, as a Christian, uh, forty plus years now, it's been, it hasn't been, you know, just a bowl of cherries, if you will, the whole way, in every aspect, in building a church, helping a small church, being an elder, being a church, good church uh, man, churchman, uh, most of my life, and trying to raise children, trying to do homeschooling. And that, but God gives a grace first unto salvation and then for the rest of your life. So I, Man. I praise him every day. My wife and I have grown in grace and uh, we feel like we're, we're better Christians than we were five years ago. What is it all about? You know, we're, our faith is deeper. Our walk is deeper. Our, int- our rightful introspection about our sin is more clear. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to go all the way to the end like that and not think that I've arrived. So yeah. Open Amen. Amen. That's so good. Praise God. Well, guys, we've had a lot of fun. I have. Uh, We've been talking to Chuck from Private Family Banking. Brother, I appreciate you coming on the show. All right, Jared. Praise the Lord. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again for listening to the Shepherd's Crook podcast. For more information, you can go to theshepherdscrook.co. Please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. And if you want to become a member of the Shepherd's Crook, please message me and we'll get you on the list. We hope you have a great rest of your day.